Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. I just wanted to say thank you for all the feedback that we received, my husband and I, for our last episode when we kind of were willing to shed a little light onto what the Tinder was all about and what we've been, what we've been embarking on, what we've been exploring, what we've been curious about. And so the feedback was phenomenal. It was more positive than negative. So that's always a good thing. And I just really appreciate hearing that even though most, most y'all out there aren't going through what I'm going through and aren't curious about what I'm curious about exactly, but just to know that you are curious about evolving your own relationship and that you are, you know, wanting to hear different information about what can stoke different things in in different relationships. So that's really been meaningful and appreciated. And I just want to continue to encourage you to offer your feedback. And the best way that you can do that is by making sure that you like this episode and not only like it, but if you have a few moments of your time, if you can rate and review recorded conversations, it really helps just kind of get the podcast out there so that hopefully other other relationships are benefiting from the messages that are that are sent out from this podcast and that other people are just given another perspective to consider, given another side of the coin, given another angle, another experience worthy of considering. So if you have time, I would love for you to do that and just help the podcast out. I do want you to know that Corey and I will be returning to do a few more episodes Um Weirdly, right after we recorded the last episode, we kind of really dug deep. It was like we had peeled back some layers that we had decided we were ready to expose to air, and we did, and we kind of let a lot of things breathe. And like I said on last week's episode, I it's been like this bipolar roller coaster, and I don't mean any offense to that, but it's literally been highs and lows, and it's been it's felt like both depression and mania. So with that being said, just the conversation that we were able to have in the last podcast episode and the space that we allowed each other to continue that conversation after we realized that we had brought up a lot of things and that maybe, well, and, and on top of it, that I had spoken most of the time, we had just a lot of other things to sort out. And we wanted to incorporate what we sorted out along with a lot of the feedback that we were receiving because we felt it would be more helpful. And we came to new discoveries and revelations that we just want to share. So like I said, sharing is caring. And maybe that's the polyamorous mantra too, but I, I firmly believe that. So going forward, as I've said, I just want to be transparent about this. This experience is, I think, something that is worth sharing. I think other people are interested in it, in it and... I I don't think that there's anything wrong with just exploring and being curious and checking things out and pushing back boundaries. And, you know, I can give you a heads up and let you know when to expect those podcasts if those aren't the podcasts you want to listen to. But going forward, I have other great conversations lined up. A lot of them pertain to sexuality and eroticism. Others don't. 
Such as to say, there is a variety of conversations headed your way, and we are fast approaching the one-year anniversary of the launch of Recorded Conversations. So my goal is to just keep learning from what I've done and to keep sharing what I am learning and to keep incorporating new perspectives, especially perspectives that challenge my my unraveling and my my existence. So I just I just want you to know that's what I'm about bringing you, but I do have a sexual lens, and so just always be prepared for that. This episode, however, is not focused on eroticism nor sexuality, but it does focus on something that I would say that I have observed in the last 10 years to not be a focus, and that's on the masculine energy. I met Colin Brown on Twitter, uh, another social media acquaintance that I've gotten to know that I've started following and that I've really just appreciated learning from and seeing kind of what he's doing. Colin Brown is the host of the Shirt Off Your Back podcast. He is also a consultant. He is a life coach. He is working on his master's in behavioral psychology. And as you will hear in the duration of the conversation, behavioral-based spiritual discipleship and mentoring is kind of a shtick. And I think it's a really important one. Just kind of looking back at some statistics um, based on some of the talking points that we had brought up. Colin Brown's focus is on the importance of, well, I wouldn't say it's his focus, but what he does is he kind of jumps in and fills the role or has been responsible for filling a role in the past of what's missing in a young boy's life, which is a father or a father figure, a role model. One in four children in the United States grow up without a father in the home, and another almost 50% of children grow up without a consistent father living in the home. So fatherlessness is a epidemic that we don't talk about because that means that we have to talk about men and the general conversation has been geared at women and feminine energy and feminism. And it seems like the tilt of embracing feminism and embracing either it be political power for women or economic and buying power for women or even just a general sense of equality between men and women, specifically in the church, which suffers significantly from a drastic hierarchy and distinction is this idea that if we focus on masculine energy, if we focus on the masculine, we're taking away from the feminine. And that's just not the thing. I think that we need to realize that we can encourage women while also making sure that we're encouraging boys at the same time. I think that's what I kind of really appreciated about Colin Brown's work is that he integrates methods of of encouraging the masculine energy, especially in adolescent boys, especially troubled boys and boys who kind of don't grow up with that kind of role model in their life. And this is a conversation that was near and dear to me because it does stem on a lot of things. I would say like a lot of uh, possible consequences that my own children could have received had I been okay with just maintaining the single mother role. And I'm not knocking on single moms. I was a single mom. But what I've noticed and something that we discuss within uh, this recorded conversation episode is that it seems to be that we are more so encouraging women to be really good moms, but that same message isn't loud and clear for men. And embracing the masculine energy and masculine power and manpower is also frowned upon. And I think that has been a, the great de- dereliction of our society in that just because we're edifying women, which we rightfully should because women are amazing, we decided that we can't edify men. And what that does is that creates generation after generation of men who think that they're bad simply because they're men, simply because they were born with a penis. Now, Freud would argue that all women have penis envy, blah, 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 blah. 
maybe that is what is being demonstrated right now. The fact that maybe we do have penis envy and that's the reason why we don't want to have a dialogue with men about anything, especially when it comes to women's issues. I don't really believe that, but it's just kind of an idea that we could sit with for a second and consider because, as I've said, if you look back on societal messaging and you look at kind of the overall behavior of what we're seeing kind of implode from this fatherlessness is that we have women complaining more and more about men who don't want to be responsible and accountable for their actions and their behaviors and their decisions. And so this this instance of children being raised without a father, it's on a steady incline, right? And we should be trying to reduce those statistics. We should make it so that, you know, our goal is that only one in 10 children grow up without a father in their home versus one in four. And so I just thought this was a really incredibly important conversation to have. I think the programs and the methods and the practices that Colin Brown uses to implement during his coaching and some of the projects that he has in mind that are going to start unfolding soon are just really important, really worth considering because this idea of toxic masculinity is taken over and we've equated masculinity to toxicity, whereas femininity has been equated to power and courageousness and bravery. It, it seems like we've decided that the opposite needs to be true for, for men. I'm not saying everybody thinks that and I'm not saying that any particular party or societal collective is guilty of that. Um, I think we're all equally responsible in whatever kind of labeled group that we attribute ourselves to and perpetuating the programming. Just any programming. It's not necessarily a patriarchal program or and it's not necessarily this anti-male program, but there is an overarching program at work, at play that keeps us divided. And so Shirt Off Your Back coaching, I believe, offers practices, methods, and and even affirmations that can just kind of help rebuild and restructure uh, masculine energy. And not only that, but taking observation of behavior. Sometimes we are not even accountable for our behavior. And I really appreciate that his coaching focuses on behavior and patterns and paying attention to the habitual programs that we are subconscious to and that we just continue to play out without stopping to ask the question why. So there's so much that we discuss in here. And one of the things that his work I think is really going to stem on contributing greatly, especially from this idea of this youth transition to adulthood. It's something similar that one of my previous guests, Alexander Shia, had talked about in this idea of rites of passage for young boys and young girls. And I don't know if you noticed this or not, but for me, I kind of always had it in my head that high school and then college would kind of give methods and ideas and, and, and concepts and examples of what to expect when you're an adult. And it doesn't seem like that's the aim anymore. It just seems like it's teaching people certain programs is what's taking place in in academia and in the universities nowadays instead of teaching people how to be responsible and accountable. And I remember Marianne Williamson touching on this when she was running uh, for, for, for the presidential candidacy. And it's this idea that, um, this idea that we, we don't want to get to the root of the problem of anything in our society. We just want to treat the symptoms. 
And so we're not no longer taking accountability, you know, and she talks about how we don't take accountability for our health and our mental health and our well-being. And so in the recording with Alexander John Shia, he had talked about how the youth need kind of this rites of passage, kind of to just kind of go out and become a woman and become a man. And those are just kind of some of the similar ideas that I had heard that were kind of activated from that previous conversation in this dialogue here with Colin Brown. It was something that he touched on and, and something that I think is also lacking is just this idea that we're not teaching young men and women how to really handle life by themselves. Like we graduate them through all the programs of school and everything and education. And then we're like, okay, why are you 27 years old still trying to live at my house? You know, and we don't find a way to remedy any of these problems. And so, and Colin Brown kind of touches on some similar ideas is that we need to learn that it's okay to be responsible, but we need to be taught how to be responsible in little things that we don't think about that sometimes the father does teach in, in some family situations. Other times it's the mother, but if there's only one parent there, a lot of things are missed because two parents kind of offer a wider scope and a wider perspective of things that a child needs to learn. And so one of the things that Colin was talking about is something that I remember kind of witnessing outside of myself when it was taking place. And this is this idea of as a young man or a young woman, just being comfortable with something simple like ordering your food at McDonald's or asking someone at Target where something is or how much something costs or doing a price check. Sometimes we don't realize it, but young adults suffer with such an anxiety in having to do things for themselves. And we might mock them. You know, we might we might relegate them to just generational stupidity, but the fact of the matter is, is nobody's teaching us how to do anything. And we live in this really convenient society right now where interacting with literal people is something that is almost becoming a rarity, especially now in the midst of COVID-19. It's just like, how do I communicate with somebody? And I noticed this, I think when my son, when he was like eight years old and we were going out and I'd say like, go ask the people up at the counter for a little to-go bag, like if we were bringing food home or something. And this this overwhelming anxiety and fear kind of took over his face. Like, you want me to do that by myself? You know, and we were maybe 15 feet away from where I wanted him to go. We had a wide open view. There were not a lot of people. It was like a dead time of the day, but it was so much for him. And even just, it was just a few weeks ago, we were at the grocery store and it was my husband and I and our three little children and two of my children and my husband and me all just kind of like turned an aisle because my son, he's 10, he was he was taking too long getting his juice. So we just kept moving and we thought he heard us say, we're just going to go over to the meat. And before I knew it, he was behind me, but he, his face was red and he had tears streaming down his eyes and he was so scared because we left him. And I thought, oh my God, I didn't even consider this, that he wasn't ready for it. And now at like eight, nine, 10 years old, sure, we understand that we have more empathy, but when we're talking about 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds, we kind of might even giggle a little bit like <laughs> you're scared to ask somebody a question. But the truth is people are scared to ask questions. I know that to be very true because I ask a lot of questions and people tell me to stop asking so many questions because questions are scary. And doing things for ourselves is very scary. We go from this protection of our parents who do everything for us. They micromanage our entire lives. Some some people have helicopter parents. And so they take care of everything for us. And so when we do go out into the world, we do have to create a new comfort zone around initiation and 
and stepping up and being responsible and accountable and doing things for ourselves. And so anyway, long story short, I think Colin Brown is a positive and beneficial contribution to the behavioral psychological realm where he is offering such methods and practices that I think are just just great ideas. They're little things that we don't think about that really need to be taught that, you know, public education and colleges are not teaching and so we need coaches and we need mentors and, and we need discipleship programs that are willing to stop and go, wait, are you really ready? And if you're not, tell me. And so just this idea of teaching other people how to ask for help, I think is beautiful. So listeners, as always, I just ask you to compassionately consider the perspective of my friend, Colin Brown. Enjoy the episode. Arizona, and um, I mean, I'm here because you invited me on the podcast, but uh, <laughs> I'm currently, I'm finishing up my master's degree in psychology with an emphasis in forensics. I've kind of always had a heart for, I don't even know if I should say it's a heart. I've always had an interest for, um, interest in at-risk populations and um, criminal behavior and things like that. I was the weird like eight-year-old, nine-year-old kid that was watching America's Most Wanted and cops and stuff like that. And like, mm. why are these guys doing bad stuff? And why are they getting arrested? And um, I'd always just been interested in it. And um, over the years, started working with teenagers. Um, and I spent about six years working in a juvenile correctional facility. Um, and currently, I work in like fitness and weight loss. Um, so I help people using a basically like cognitive behavioral therapy practices and things like that and, and behavior-based practices, helping people uh, develop health and wellness plans and, and stick to them and get exercise and eat better and uh, subsequently lose weight. Um, and I really enjoy doing that. And it's, it's the same arena, you know, it's, it's using a lot of the same techniques, a lot of the same uh, behavior-based practices, but it's just kind of the other end of the spectrum. And um, what I am hoping to do um, 
So I'll back up a little bit. About five years ago, I started a, a company um, called Shirt Off Your Back. And basically what I was doing was making um, shirts for local organizations. Like there's a, there's an organization here called Christian Challenge, um, and they operate on college campuses and stuff. And they basically, they uh, it's Christian ministry. They witness the people. They help uh, college-age students develop their faith and things like that. And so I printed some T-shirts for them. Um, and, and doing them at a fairly reasonable price, knowing that a lot of these nonprofits and stuff don't have a ton of money to spend and um, kind of got away from that a little bit and left things kind of on the back burner. Um, and what I am hoping to do is shirt off your back. Uh, it's been around for about five years and I've started and stopped and started and stopped. So um, what I'm hoping to do is kind of take these behavior-based practices and all these concepts in psychology I've learned because psychology is kind of a dirty word in the local church sometimes, but, and, and implement them into the local church and say, these practices work and they work for a reason. And part of the thing that, that triggered this thought in my mind was um, I had a, a period of, it started probably about uh, 2016. Um, you know, I was an adult married with kids and my parents got divorced. So it's really weird, like when you're an adult and your parents get divorced. I'm like, what do you mean you guys are getting, you've been married for like 35 years. Like you're too old to get divorced. You're too old to start over. You know, me just being, you know, uh, being me and thinking like, well, that's, I get it. But it, you know, it was kind of strange and it, um, not traumatizing, but it was definitely uh, a difficult thing to go through. And uh, that same year I had a suicide attempt in my family um, and so just went through a lot of things and I ended up, uh, going to therapy, uh, for a little bit and learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about practices. And after two therapy sessions, I felt better than I had felt talking to anybody in my church. Mm. And I don't, and I don't necessarily fault anybody in the church. It's just sometimes people don't know what to say or they, they don't know what to do. So they either end up doing nothing or they end up saying the wrong thing. They end up kind of silver lining it. You know, well, it could be worse. You could be this other guy that had it like this. And that's one of the worst things you can say to somebody who's going through something a little bit traumatic and a little bit difficult. Um, and so it was definitely uh, that year, 2016, was a, a banner banner year for me. Um, Do you and, think watching your parents go through that divorce kind of cracked something open for you that you hadn't looked at before? Yeah, I, th I think so, because I kind of felt like I took, I took like security and kind of took safety and took that for granted, I guess. And it, and it you know, I, I'm an adult. So things that I talked to them about that there was, it was some things that I knew that were going on when I was a kid, but I didn't really know it. You know, I knew, okay, like something's up with mom and dad, but I never really I never really put the pieces together because I was a kid. And then as I got an adult, I realized, Oh, mom and dad are human too. And they, you know, they're not superheroes. They have problems like everyone else. Um, and then they tell me, you know, they're, they're splitting up when I'm an adult and I'm like, okay, it, it was hard and it was a little bit traumatic, but it, it made sense at the same time. Um, knowing some of the stuff that they went through and, and after I was an adult, it's like hindsight's 2020, but it definitely, definitely shook my foundation. And I was like, okay, I had this idea of what my life was like. And then all of a sudden it wasn't that way anymore. Yeah. Uh, 
and, and, and it was like, it wasn't a surprise necessarily. It wasn't a complete shock, but it was still, it was like, okay, what do I do now? You know, where do I go from here? Um, and then about, uh, two, two months after that, um, suicide attempt in my family. Um, so it was just, and after, after three, four five, maybe six months of that going to therapy off and on, I started getting this concept of why aren't, why aren't we doing these practices in church? You know, and I, I had already had my bachelor's degree in psychology. So when this kind of sparked an interest, I'm like, I'm going to go back and get my master's degree and finish. Um, and I'm going to try to, uh, develop a behavior based, um, almost like a discipleship, spiritual gifts. I don't know exactly how I'm going to classify it yet, but sort of a discipleship mentoring program for local churches. So if they have people in their congregations that are struggling, I can go to a pastor and say, Hey, um, here's some answers. And it's not that the local church isn't enough. It's not that the Bible isn't enough. It's not that you're not enough pastor. It's that these other techniques work. And the more I study it and the more I read it, I see evidence of those techniques throughout um, scripture and just throughout Christianity, you know, just listening to people talk about their problems and not being so quick to solve them for them and just giving them the space to kind of um, vent and a space to figure it out for themselves and um, letting letting people really be authentic. That's a good point. And, you know, you said when you compared that whole, that difference you would experience from therapy through versus just kind of discipleship or, or sharing in with your congregation, it's almost like we're taught to listen only to what the pastor is saying. And we don't, we're not taught how to listen to each other. Like I, yeah. I always thought that we put the pastor up on this pedestal and conveniently, a lot of them always are. And they're elevated. And so we're taught to focus in, pay attention to what they're saying. And then a lot of times, okay, pay attention to what they're saying, but don't ask too many questions about it either. And then if we dare try and share what we're feeling or interpreting, I just noticed this within my own church experience with other people. Mm -hmm. We didn't know how to listen to other people coming at us with a different view because that's not what we interpreted. And of course, there's there's a time and a place for that, and there's a venue for that. You know, pastors up there preaching, it's not necessarily our place to stand up and, hey, I struggle with this, and I want to talk about it. And, you, know. you know, why not, though? That's the thing that always bothered yeah. me. I wanted church to be like, whoa, 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 wait. <laughs> wait, what did you mean by that verse? Because then they're already 50. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, okay, I'm going to read this verse. Any questions? I, yeah. wanted, I want church to be like that. We break verses down. And And that's definitely something I've wrestled with because I've thought the same thing. And I'm like, okay, but at the same time, I don't want to take away from somebody that really enjoys the sermon and really enjoys learn. Like I kind of think about it. Different people learn different ways. There's visual learners, there's auditory learners, there's hands-on learners. I don't, and I've told my pastor this, I was like, I don't get a lot out of um, sermons. And I, I, I just personally, I don't get a lot out of church and out of corporate worship, which is funny because I actually, I play in like the worship band in my church and I don't even like worship music at all, but I love playing music. So it's this interesting <laughs> kind of like, uh, it's this interesting balance. And I, um, I thought the same thing and I'm like, but if that's all it was, then there would be people saying, well, I would like just more of, just more of a learning experience. Like, Hey, this is what this, this is what this Greek word means. And you know, 
Yeah. So, I, you know, you have to be as accommodating as you can be without being too um, catering it to one group of people. So, um, and, and, you know, we've, we've done men's groups and I've worked in youth groups and things like that. And I've always just kind of felt wanting by a lot of them. It was always, and I, I don't want to knock it. I don't want to say it's, it's bad, but it was always like, well, here's what the Bible says. And I'm like, okay, I, I know that, but what is that doing for me right now to solve my problem in this moment? It's giving me comfort and it's giving me some relief. Um, but it's not, it's not making my problem go away, you know? And I always felt like when somebody would do that, they would throw this at you and say, well, here's this, this Bible verse, or here's this passage, or here's this concept from, you know, that I learned in seminary school. It was almost like they were too quick to give an answer and too quick to try to solve the problem instead of really listen and really analyze the problem and help me, help me walk through it. And one of the things that really, Mm -hmm. really sparked this for me was um, the story of the woman at the well. Jesus says, go, um, go get your husband. And she's like, oh, I don't have a husband. And he's like, basically like, yeah, I know. And just gives her the space to figure it out for herself and doesn't condemn her and doesn't say, oh, you're a terrible, per- terrible person and this and that. He just, he has a conversation with her and lets her kind of explain who she is. And then she figures it out. And I'm like, that's therapy. Yeah. You know, Christ, is called, he's called a wonderful counselor. And that's therapy is letting people talk because talking is a form of, of thinking and then you hear yourself talk. So it's kind of a form of listening and you do all that. And then you're like, wait a minute, I know how to solve my problem. Why am I, why am I in therapy? You know, it's like, mm. you just space to talk and figure out your problem. And I see that a lot. I see that pattern a lot in, in, in scripture and in, in Christ's interaction with people. And I, I just, I don't see it a lot in the church and I, I really, my goal is really to cater this program to young adults too, that are kind of like, I don't know if I want to get married. I don't know what I want to do for college. I don't know what I want to do for a career. Um, and I, I've developed over the years um, doing things like social work and um, working in paraprofessional capacities, um, working out in the community with young people. I've kind of developed a, um, a method for goal setting and for figuring out a vision for their life and um, sort of a step-by-step, you know, semi kind of not super formulaic and not you do step one, you do step two, you do step three, but just a way to kind of break it down and say, okay, this is the vision for your life. What goals are, are kind of encamped within that vision? And then what action steps can you take to reach those goals? And just a very practical way to think about your life. So, Uh, it sounds like Colin, what you do is you saw there was a lacking where there just wasn't active listening and there wasn't waiting to be told what the feelings, emotions, problems were. There were these ready-made answers and you, and, and I tend to prefer something more like this too. You're like, where's my plan of action? Like what methods can I utilize that will help me create maybe new patterns, new routines, and figure out a way to break out of this habitual behavior. And I think a lot of people are searching for that. That's been one of my complaints is you have all these really beautiful things to say and write. And I'm over here going, but what do I do? Like, what, what do I do? What should I do? You know? And so then of course, and that's, that's seeking, I, you know, I come to different ideas. Well, yoga is a good thing to do. 
Um, mm-hmm. and, and it looks like you're focused on, on fitness and, and exercise and, and personal physical health, you know, and that is really important. I think that's something even spirituality doesn't talk about that is a lacking as well as like, why aren't we also talking about how to take care of our bodies? Mm-hmm. I know we have a completely different sector for that, but we don't integrate the relationships of our spiritual health, our mental health, our physical health, our emotional health, our sexual what? health. And we compartmentalize and we're like, well, that sector deals with it. Not, and, and, and that sector deals with it over here. Yeah. And you're like, well, where's the integrative methods of practice here so that mm-hmm. I can be in balance and in harmony. And so I noticed you, you, your hashtags were psychology, coaching, fitness, church, and faith. And one of your tweets was a fantasy of what an open gym while also providing mental health and spiritual health. And I was like, yes, all yeah. three of them integrated right there. Yeah. So, yeah, when I was doing uh, social work, I was doing it out in the community and I'd work with a lot of a lot of young men and um, I mean, young women, too. So, you know, they if if they had a preference, if they would prefer to work with a, um, a female, we would kind of give them that that option. Um, but mostly it was like, you know, you're going to have to learn how to work with members of the opposite sex. So you might as well get used to it now in a professional setting. So when you do get a job or you do start going to school again, you can learn how to navigate that. But I would work with a lot of young men and most of them wanted to get involved in a gym or they wanted to get involved in sports in their school and things like that. And, you know, looking at the behavioral health aspect of it, it was like, okay, you're on these medications, you have these cognitive behavioral issues, you have this uh, diagnosis, let's see what we can, let's see what we can do within that, within that framework. Um, and, and honestly, some kids, like we would work on job interview skills and I'd take them to the park and throw the baseball around with them and do a job interview while I was throwing a baseball around with them and just trying to get them out of their environment and get them comfortable, but actually work on a skill at the same time. And it, it kind of hit me. I'm like, a, a lot of kids have never had that. And I would say out of, out of, if I had 25 kids on a caseload, 23 of them would not have a dad in the house, in the home, you know, or they'd be, or they'd be in a group home or they would be, or they would be just out of, uh, just off of probation or things like that. So most of them didn't have a father in the home. They didn't have, I don't know, somebody to teach them that, 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 uh, stereotypical manly stuff. This is how you change the oil. This is how you lift weights. This is how you, and and then it kind of hit me. I'm like, okay, so I'm working in behavioral health and I'm teaching these kids how to take care of themselves, how to get a job, how to schedule their medications, how to make doctor's appointments, how to make dentist appointments. And then they also want to ask about physical health. And then I, I take them to a gym and this is how you get a gym membership. And this is what you need. And this is what it costs. And I'm like, why isn't this all under one roof? Because basically what I did uh, was I helped people transition from youth services to adult services. So they kind of had this in-between time where if, if, they didn't, um, if they didn't connect all the dots, if they didn't um, cross every T and dot every I, they would lose their services. So I was kind of like a buffer um, between those two. And I also taught you know, uh, independent living skills, how to budget, how to, basically how to take care of themselves. And a lot of them wanted physical health. They wanted to lose weight. You know, a lot of the guys, I want to get strong and look good for the, the girls at school and things like that. And why doesn't a behavioral health facility here in Phoenix have a gym or have a treadmill so they can go to that community center and get therapy or get their meds and then go lift weights and hop on the treadmill at the same time. So that's sort of like my, my dream 
is to have a building that has a gym and some therapy and some uh, solution-based practice offices in it. You know, you touched on a couple of points that activated just other thoughts and other conversations I've participated in. And one was that, that physical energy. You incorporated playing catch with, with doing an interview. And a lot of times, and I think more currently, I'd say within the last five, five, 10 years, we've acted like not really concerned with the masculine energy at all. And we've forgotten that masculine energy is active and literally needs to keep their hands busy. Mm-hmm. And that is an important part of development for that adolescence into young adult that I think a father's role is most beneficial for help influencing and transitioning that from that rugged playfulness of toddler and young children into more responsible playfulness and, and, and ways to fill that desire for activity where it doesn't go toward a foul side. And then that triggers on another point, which is fatherlessness. And that seems to be a significant factor in a lot of the traumas, societal traumas that we see facing our youth and our generations as they're coming about is this fatherlessness that takes away from these young men and their ability to learn how to negotiate the world and their realities. And I kind of feel like these are a couple of factors that you've also maybe observed and paid a little bit of attention to. No, absolutely. And, it, you know, I've seen plenty of, um, I, I mean, I can think of a few that I've worked with over the years, um, you know, foster mothers and single moms and things like that have, that have been great. I don't, I don't want to negate that and say, you know, unequivocally that a mom and a dad in a home is the ideal. I think it is an ideal, but I, is it the ideal? I don't know. But I cringe when I hear things like toxic masculinity, mostly just because I, I, I think a lot of the toxic masculinity stems from a lack of masculinity because nobody has taught these young men how to be men and how to not be toxic. And two, I'm like, okay, who gets to define that? Who gets to define what toxic masculinity is? Um, if it's another man, if it's another woman, and because once you define things, you give that definition uh, power and you put it in a domain and you put it in a framework and you say anything outside of this domain is, anything in this box is not toxic, anything outside of that box is toxic. And I'm like, okay, how do you get to define that though, especially when uh, cultures are completely different. I worked with a very large number of uh, Hispanic and and young black kids that way different than Hispanic, for example. Very um, there's a certain culture of like machismo and things like that, um, where you don't show emotion and you don't. And whether that's good or bad, I don't know. I personally, I would err on the side of no. They you know, they need to show emotion. They need to be able to get emotional and let aggression out. But again, it's a cultural thing. So the, a lot of the same people that I see saying, well, that's toxic, toxic masculinity, they're also the ones trying to do this forced multiculturalism and saying, well, we all need to be equal and we're all the same and we're all, I'm like, I, I'm for equality, but we're not all the same. We're not, it's different. So what looks like toxic masculinity to Hispanic culture might not look like it to a white culture. And I've, I've seen that you know, for better or worse. And I'm like, I don't think it's that simple 
to just say, this is what it is and define it. And when we have an epidemic of fatherless homes, so I'm like, we're trying to figure out what masculinity is, I think, let alone, you know, toxic masculinity. But of course, when you say something like that and say, you know, I'd really like to build up young men in this country or in my state or in my community, it's like, oh, well, why young men? Young men are, they already have privilege and they're men. They're already, they already have this certain amount of power. I'm like, okay, their, their suicide rates are higher. Their homicide rates are higher. They by and large take more dangerous jobs. Um, more men commit mass shootings. I'm like, there's something wrong with men right now. Why, why would we not want to lift them up and build them up? And I'm sorry, if you've got a kid that's mixed up, and a kid that's depressed, and a kid that's nihilistic, and then you just tell him over and over and over again he's toxic, that's a recipe for disaster. You know, that's the Columbine shooting. That's, you know, we just had a shooting here in uh, Glendale a couple weeks ago. Yeah. You know, that's, that's this nihilistic, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The uh, incel culture, you know, these oh, guys yeah. that are involuntary celibate men, and they're just bitter and angry. And I'm like, you're going to tell a mixed up, bitter and angry kid that he's toxic. Yeah. And, and I don't want to blame the victims. I don't want to say it's your fault that this kid did that because it's not necessarily entirely. But I'm like, we're creating this culture of just bashing men over and over again and then saying men are toxic. And I'm like, what do you expect? You know? Yeah. And the problem is, is often I see this, if you're going to build one group of anybody up, there's an automatic assumption that you're taking away from another group. And I think, well, wait, we have the capability to just keep on loving people. Like, let's just heap this love over people and build everybody up. But for whatever reason, we have it in our head, this whole comparison, ego mentality. If you build one person up, that must mean you're tearing me down somehow or somebody. And it's not like that. And we need, and I think, how do I make that decision as a mother of both boys and girls to decide I'm only going to lift my daughter up and not my son? Just, I would never do that in my own personal choices in my home. So I ask, why would society ask us to make those choices of our right. sons and daughters of this country, of our culture? Like, why would you ask us to choose one or the other? And I believe in a God that doesn't reject and doesn't, cast people to hell and doesn't turn people away and so for me that has to run all the way through and that has to mean I'm cool with lifting these people up and I'm cool with lifting these people up because we have unlimited strength to build people up I mean that we have unlimited strength to tear people down too but shouldn't we build yeah. people up and yeah it's uh the fatherlessness is you know, there are a variety of contributing factors that lead to this. And we could go down many rabbit holes with that. But the focus <laughs> I just want to put on this is that it is an epidemic. It is something we should talk about. It, we need to realize that just as much as the feminine energy is divine and beautiful and full, so is the masculine. And we, we need both of them. And we need... I don't, I don't know what happened if it was feminism combined with just rejection of patriarchy and I don't know, but we all of a sudden decided we didn't need to think about the best possible outcome for raising children. It was just like, do whatever you want. Don't think about it. Do, you're a strong woman. You can do it. I was a single mother. I would not recommend that for anybody. 
That is not ideal. That is very difficult. That is added strain. And I, you know, I was a child myself. I was 18. I didn't know crap. My brain was not even done developing yet. It's not ideal and it's difficult. And I don't know, there's just this promotion I see in a lot of different pockets where go for it and do it and be brave and courageous. And I think it's braver and it's more brave and more courageous to be willing to fall in love with somebody else and then create a family out of that where the foundation is more consistent and where, you know, if we're talking about ideals and utopian dreams, where you are able to transition and change with one person before you start to create another and then help form their relationships because everything is centered on relationship. And if we don't know how to have one good relationship, do we want to be responsible for creating these little creatures and teaching them how to relate to others if we're not doing it? And so, yes. But again, we don't always make the best choices and we have to uh, receive our consequences of love and just go forth and try and make the best of it. But there needs to be a new message where it is okay to be a father. Like it's cool. It's really cool to do it. And we should promote that. (laughs) Yeah. I I think of that. Was it that, uh, Paula, Paula Cole song that where have all the cowboys gone? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, that's a really good question. Cause I don't know. Yes. You know, and, and again, define cowboy, you know, because you, you want men to stand up and you want them to be chivalrous and you want them to defend things. But then there's this other thing of toxic. So, and, and I, I think, I think I would know toxic masculinity when I see it. Yeah. Uh, in my mind, I have a good definition of what that would be, but that may be different for somebody else. So I'm like, let's define toxic masculinity. And it's, to me, it's just this, to me, it's a, it's a lot of narcissism. It's a lot of mm-hmm. self-involvement. People want to feel important. They want to feel like they are contributing, some, contributing something to society. And in a lot of ways, academia is. Um, but in a lot of ways, it's not. And in a lot of ways, it's dividing people. It is, it's causing, I think, a lot of problems that people aren't even aware of, um, that people aren't. I mean, we're kind of seeing it now with a lot of the, the nihilistic and the, the Marxist, just rabid anti-capitalist stuff that's going on right now. And it's just, it's straight out of, straight out of the universities. It's, <laughs> you know. Um, it's Orwellian. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I don't think, I don't think the people that are participating in it even know what that word means. If you said no, this I is know. Orwellian, they wouldn't even know what that means. Or they that's, say, don't be so dramatic. And I think yeah. really like, okay, fine. So save it for those who have ears to listen, because I swear people are more content with plugging up their ears and putting blindfolds on. They must've moved their masks up to their eyes now. And you know, the reality is, is people do that because we don't like to be accountable. I mean, that's my theory. If I don't, if I don't advance my own intellectual objective on reality, if I'm not willing to dig a little bit deeper than just what's on the surface, if I'm not willing to critically think about things and ask questions, I don't have to be responsible for anything. I can just tra la and be entertained and do whatever I want. And I don't have to think about that because when I have to think about being responsible, Now that makes me feel like I have to act and how do I act? And if I act the wrong way, what does that make me? And, 
you know, all these contriving little boxes we can be shoved in and identified with all these different labels just because we want to do the right thing. I think we've put a lot of eggs in the freedom basket and not in the responsibility (laughs) and not in the responsibility basket. I'm all for freedom and I'm all for liberty, but with that comes a lot of responsibility. And I think we're getting away from responsibility. And it's, it's really interesting when you help a young mixed up kid who's on probation get a job at McDonald's and you watch him work his ass off at that job at McDonald's. And I'm like, this kid can't stay awake in math class. This kid is getting arrested every other month for, you know, whatever, breaking curfew or, you know, you know, dropping dirty on his drug tests. And you get this kid a job at McDonald's and, and I mean, this is, anecdotal, but this happened, you know, I'd go and I'd visit this kid at McDonald's to get lunch and sit and do paperwork and just watch this kid work and just work and hustle really good customer service. And if you didn't see this kid at McDonald's, you'd be like, Oh, that kid's scroungy looking. And you know, he, he was a rough looking kid and kid had a mouth on him, could be super disrespectful. But when he was at his job at McDonald's, totally different kid, you know? So tell me, tell me responsibility isn't, isn't super beneficial to people. And that's, that's, I mean, to kind of come back to where we were, that's, that's a wonderful thing about um, these solution-based practices. And, and if you could, so kind of where I start with it is I've, I've formulated this question from about three different other questions that I've heard. I always start it with like a vision for your life. And I basically say, if you could meet yourself in five years, who would you want to meet? So if, if Bob, five years down the road, walks in your front door and says, hi, Bob, I'm Bob, you know, nice to meet you. And you're meeting yourself five years from now, who would you want to meet? You know, and they start thinking, and I'm like, what do you want to be doing for a job? Do you want to be married? Do you want to have kids? Do you want to be living in a house, in an apartment? Um, and they start to develop this idea of like who they want to be in five years and not, and, and who they would want to meet, you know? And then I'm like, okay, what do we got to do to get there? And if they're like, I want to be a firefighter, it's like, okay, well, we better look into getting into the, the fire academy and looking at what, what co- college classes you would have to take and things like that. And when they start really taking responsibility for it, they start to own it and it starts to become their goal and it starts to become their life. And, and it's, not, it's not a life that they're living through someone else and it's not a life that someone else is living through them. It's theirs and they own it. And what, what that actually does, that actually builds pathways in their brain and and they start to crave more responsibility and they say, Hey, I worked and I got a paycheck. That feels really good. And I'll I'll never forget this conversation probably until the day I die. I had a conversation with a kid. This was actually just before I quit doing social work and he wanted to get a job. And I said, I'm going to ask you a question. It's going to sound really stupid. And I said, why do you want to get a job? What purpose does that serve? What is, what is your, uh, what's the appeal of getting a job? And he's like, well, I want to get a paycheck. Like, okay, for what? He's like, well, I want to, I want to buy stuff. Like what kind of stuff? Well, if I go to Target and I want to buy an Xbox game, I want to be able to buy it. You know, I want to be able to pay for it myself. And I go, okay, so is it about the paycheck or is it about being able to buy yourself stuff? And he's like, well, you can't really do one without the other. And I'm like, okay, dude, I get that. But I'm like, roll with me here. You know, I'm like, so what, what, why is it good to be able to buy yourself stuff? And he's like, well, that would feel really good to not have to like mooch off my mom and, and wait for her to have money to buy me an Xbox game and have to do all these chores and like, you know, be like, mom, I took out the trash. Can I have 20 bucks? You know, 
and I'm like, okay, so it's, it's kind of about like being able to support yourself and, oh yeah, yeah, that would be really cool. You know? And eventually it got to the point where he told me him and his mom were basically homeless at one point, you know, eating out of garbage cans. And he's like, you know, I'd love to be able to like take some of my paycheck and give it to my mom to like pay some bills and things like that. In, in a 10 minute conversation, this kid started talking about how responsible he wanted to be just by asking him, why do you, why do you want to get a job? You know, he started really owning that goal and really developed this kind of less abstract and more concrete vision of what a job could do for him, you know? So yeah, we've responsibilities <laughs> really, really, really important for our young people. It is. And we can't teach it. I think we've tried, but I don't see how that works. It's just, it's something that you have to all of a sudden be confronted with and realize what it can do for you if you embrace it. And that, I think that goes into playing just, are we receiving things as gifts and, and as, as benefits to our lives or are we just reacting to whatever we're dealt with? Right. And it's a difference between whether we're willing to respond and receive it or react and reject it. Yeah. And it's, it's the difference between responding voluntarily to things and saying, you know what, I'm going to get up and I am going to go look for a job today versus, uh, I have to get up and go look for a job today. When you face things head on and you take them as opportunity and it sounds really cliche and it sounds cheesy, but you take them as opportunities rather than challenges, you know, and what can I, what can I learn from this? You know, I, I had a, a young man, he was very closed off, very quiet, played a lot of video games, didn't go out at all, ever, was scared to like, if we went to Burger King, he was like scared to pay for his food, things like that, because he was just very socially awkward and socially intimidated by a social situation. So we would just, we would go to Target and we would walk around Target and just talk. And I'd be like, hey, go ask that employee how much the shirt is. And just give them these little tasks to kind of help build them up and see that the guy working at Target, he's a yeah, he's a stranger, but he's a professional stranger. You know, you can, you can go to him and ask him questions. And, and this isn't, this isn't my own doing, this is all his work, but um, this kid graduated high school. He ended up getting a job uh, as a welder making like, he was working like 50 hours a week, making 14 bucks an hour at 18 years old. I'm like, dude, I was making six bucks an hour, maybe at 18 years old. If that, he's like, really? I go, yeah, minimum wage was a lot less back when, you know, when I was 18, but you know, and the kid, the kid was awesome. He just needed somebody to kind of be like, Hey, the world, yes, the world is scary, but you are big enough and you're bad enough and you're brave enough to face it, you know, cause the world is a very scary place and it's very dangerous. And I think that kind of goes along with this conversation about responsibility was that we've really coddled people and we've, we've spent a lot of time telling people you're okay the way you are when they're not. It's like, okay, you might be okay where you're at now, but that doesn't mean you have to stay there. You could always be a little bit better, you know? Yes. Yeah. We coddle people and we are too scared to tell them that they shouldn't justify their emotions so much. I think that's one thing that's so irritating right now. I'd say the last few years I've noticed it, especially as justified anger and and righteous outrage and entitled to my emotions. And I think, okay, your feelings aren't wrong. There's nothing wrong with what you're feeling ever. 
but your feelings are still just in that moment. Like that's how you're taking in that moment that you're experiencing. You don't have to bring those emotions with you for like six years or 20 years or 50 years. Like let those emotions that you felt at that time go and notice that if they're triggered again, that might mean that you have to work on something here or realize something or let go of something else. And it doesn't have to be this thing that we identify with. I think we identify with our emotions so much that it's easier to identify with our emotions than responsibility. You know, if I am paying more attention to defining my uh, identity by my emotions I don't even have to ask what accountability means and I certainly don't have to demonstrate it. And so then, yeah, we have unaccountable people who are, you know, always like, fix it, fix it, fix it. Someone fix it for me. And it's like, well, you're supposed to fix it. And that sounds like what, that's what you're modeling. That's what you're trying to teach is I can help you. I've got tools in my toolbox. This is what I use. And if nothing else, it just kind of recalibrates a new programming for us. Yeah. And I, I, I worry that in the very, very near future, we're running into, you know, I think there's a lot of a lot of bigger churches that they have more money for resources to have counselors or whatever on staff and, and that are even licensed, you know, to handle therapeutic and behavioral situations. And But I think a lot of smaller churches, they lack the resources and the knowledge and the skills to be able to handle even even basic you know behavioral health situations that not necessarily somebody that has an addiction problem or anything like that but just somebody that's a teenager that's just kind of lethargic and, and nihilistic about things and I don't know I was 16 17 I got super into emo music and stuff like that you know to some degree that's <laughs> to some degree that's somewhat natural but you kind of have to grow out of that at some point I think we're that period of sort of uh, lethargy and nihilism is, is growing and it's being extended into, especially young men. I think it's being extended into like early to mid twenties. It's very scary when I see young men in churches and they're like, we don't know how to help this kid. You know, I don't really know. We don't, we're not equipped to do this. And in some ways it's like, okay, that's not your fault. You have 50 people in your church, you know, but there's some very basic motivational interviewing and active listening and some very basic skills that I, one of my, my best friends, he's a youth pastor and he, that's what he went to school for. That's what he is in ministry for. And he's a licensed pastor. And he's like, yeah, we never took any classes about active listening or in Bible college. And I'm like, so you're going to, you got a degree in working with people and developing young minds and you weren't taught anything about active listening. I'm like, that's a very basic skill. You learn that at like you know, you learn that at McDonald's, how to, how to deal with upset customers and things like that, you know? And I'm like, you didn't learn it in Bible school, man. That's scary. Active listening, yeah, I took a course on it. And I took a course on nonviolent communication. Mm-hmm. And after I went through both of them, I was like, why doesn't everybody take these courses? Like, why isn't it just required that we are literally taught to listen? And then taught how to speak to one another without using violence in our words and our tones and our body language. We, we're not taught these very basic things that could help us spread love and be more civil to each other and extend grace. Instead, we're taught to get mad, get mad, get mad, terrorize each other with words and texts. And yeah, yeah. I think of all these, all these kind of 
situations that um, have kind of come back, uh, kind of coming back to mind now um, over the years. You know, we had a, a young lady um, started coming to youth group and hanging out with some friends at church and things like that. And she was having some, um, some questions about her sexuality and started coming to some of the adults in the church and the younger adults and even her peers about it. It was kind of like a question mark. We were kind of like, okay, what, you know, what's going on? And um, finally, I remember just saying like, have you, have you talked to your mom and dad about this at all? She's like, well, I can't, I can't talk to them because they don't listen. And I go, okay, well, I don't, what do you mean they don't listen? Like, do they just tune you out or they just, do they just not understand what you're going through? And she said, they just, they give me Bible verses to read and they tell me that this is what I'm doing wrong. And she's like, I don't, and this, this broke my heart when I heard this. She said, I don't feel like I have parents. I feel like I have pastors. Mm. And I was like, my goodness, what are we doing? Like, I, I understand the, I understand the power of faith and I understand how that works in people's lives. And, um, but it's so much more than just a list of do's and don'ts. And it's so much more than just a, Oh, you have a problem. I have a Bible verse for that. It's not a bandaid. It's not a bomb, you know, to just put on your bruises. It's, it's so much more than that. And, and so much of, of church is, you know, just relationships and working with broken people and trying to get people to make sense of their life in the best way they can, you know, and in a lot of ways, we're, we're just not equipped to do it. And I'm hoping over the next year or so I can really get um, running on this because like I said, it's, it's been starting and stopping for about five years and I'm finishing up my master's degree in November. So I should be done with school and be able to really hit the ground running with this. That sounds really, really, really fascinating. So you're going to, are you pitching this as like, are you doing, are you wanting to do like courses? Are you wanting to partner and collaborate with other people in the same area? I mean, do you have like, do you have other coaches or psychologists or pastors that you're working with yeah. right now and kind of collaborating and yes so the way I kind of have it structured now um, I have a good friend he is an addiction counselor um, so he is going to help me out with um, basically I'm going to hire them as like uh, sub subcontractors or like consultants so if they do a session on on their whatever they're a subject matter expert in um, I'll give them like x amount of money or whatever their their fee is for their their time. Um, but he, he's an addiction counselor. So he has his clinical license and he works for an organization here in Phoenix, but he also has an independent practice. And so he's like, well, I could put together a package on like the DSM, the clinical criteria for depression and teach the church about what depression is and what it looks like and warning signs to look for and what to say and what not to say. Cause there's so many big misconceptions about people that are depressed and people that are suicidal and there's, there's a disconnect between um, the clinical aspect of it and the psychology aspect of it in the church. And talking to him and having conversations with him, it's like there's, there shouldn't be a disconnect because these are the same things. These are the same concepts and the same principle. They just they have church language attached to one and they have academic language attached to the other, but they're, they're the same thing. I have another good friend. He is, uh, um, he's, he's the same youth pastor, um, but he's very... Um, he actually runs our, our summer camp too. He's our, our camp director for like our regional 
uh, summer camp and he's very much um, very good with like volunteers, very good at like organizational management, um, managing people in a, in a program and delegating responsibilities and things like that. So um, having him put together a little package and a, a presentation or a talk on like volunteer management and church management. Um, good friend, he's got his master's in educational administration. A lot of times we're quick to, hey, you're a nice lady and you have kids, you can go teach Sunday school. And it's like, okay, but what if she has somebody in her Sunday school that has behavioral issues or mm-hmm. that's never been a teacher and doesn't know how to teach because there's, there's a certain way to teach. Um, and some people have a natural gift for it and some people don't. And he works in, um, he works in primarily low income schools. And so he's very good at dealing with more difficult students, students that have behavioral issues, students that have issues paying attention. And he's like, yeah, I can totally put together a package on how to, on classroom management for churches. Um, and I'm in the process of um, just so I don't get accused of being sexist, um, <laughs> I'm in the process of getting some women on board too and um, looking at, okay, wh- how can we feminize this a little bit and, and look at things like, I, I, she's, she's a good friend. She's very, very smart, has her master's in theology, and I think she's going to go for her doctorate, which is kind of an, an interesting field for a woman to be in, you know, yes. to be... Yes. To be really in in a lot of churches, that's um, that's either frowned upon or it's kind of like, oh, you're a woman and you're you want to be a pastor or you want to do, you know. So getting her involved and really having her do, I don't know, like women's role in churches or something like that. Or I think she would be really good at the coaching aspect of it too. Yeah. Um, well, so, and just as an aside too, I I don't think. I would say that sometimes we might feel the need to say, I'm also working on this because I've done it too. Like I was working with um, another psychologist and we were doing some um, kind of speaking things to just for women, you know, Oh, should we talk about men? And then I was like, well, I'm not a dude. Like, I don't know. uh, I mean, I know men, but like, I don't know men. And so then like we went back and forth and I was kind of like, I barely understand me, a woman. I'm just, I'm not getting into that. And it's cool if you want to like make me feel bad because I won't, but I'm just not. Like I will give you, I will talk to you personally. Like I have a lot of men message me and have a lot of questions. Some questions I thought I would never be asked, but I willingly answer everyone I can. But it's, it's not always necessary. I like your focus. I, I think that's what drew me to you is I was like, he's, he's working on masculine energy and masculine mental health. And I think that is important. I think it, that's just kind of what stood out to me is that you weren't afraid to like some, some of your articles seem to be very just dedicated toward the, the masculine audience or more so for the mass understanding the masculine energy. And I think that's, that's very important. You know, as much as we, you know, we push for having more of a feminized view in a lot of aspects, I, I don't think we need to take away from the masculine view. So, but I also appreciate that you're willing to do that with this collaboration and this project you're trying to get off foot because churches need it. Churches always seem to be behind, especially in the psychological realm. And this yes. is very important because we can't really get our spirituality in check until we like get all of the other stuff all rearranged yeah. and integrated. So and, you can be I, found at shirtoffyourbackaz.com, right? Yes. 
Okay. And so there people can stay up to date on what you're doing. Do you provide a newsletter or how will you be updating people as this project develops? Um, I do. I do have a place on the website where you can sign up for a newsletter. I'm not really doing much with it right now. I just, I have so many different things going on at one time, mm -hmm. um, really trying to focus on finishing up school. But within the next uh, two, three months, I should really start doing more with it. Um, and and I'm, I actually, her, her name's Kim. I was actually just texting her today and said, hey, let's get together for coffee. I want to run this project by you. And she was the, uh, the woman that I'm talking to that is is going to get involved in. I might even bug my wife and be like, hey, babe, you need to help me out with this. Um, but, you know, and it, for me, it's not necessarily about, I was kind of half joking about being accused about being sexist. But for me, it's, I want to be able to cover all of my bases. Because as much as I do see a masculine, a need for a masculine faith. And and I don't, I don't mean a toxic faith. I don't mean, uh, man, I mean a masculine faith where men can get together and identify with one another and be comfortable with that and build up young men that are ready to shoulder responsibility and ready mm -hmm. to, if they are going to have a family, not saying they have to, but ready for that. And to the degree that you can be, because you're never really ready for it, but yeah. to be ready to shoulder that responsibility and face, face what's going to happen to them because bad things, difficult things, rough things are going to happen. And it's just, it's not easy to transition, especially from that period between like 16 and 23. It's just such a weird mm -hmm. time of life where you're kind of a, kind of an adult, but you're still kind of a kid and you don't really know what camp you're in, you know, whether you're team adult or, or team child and just really trying to develop a, a place where the local church can usher young adults into adulthood and yeah, encourage they're, they're, a masculine evolution. Yeah. And they're not even really deep-seated psychological practices. They're very basic behavioral intervention, yeah. very basic solution-based practices. It's not like I'm up there throwing, you know, Nietzsche or Carl Jung or Carl Rogers or anything. No, don't get that difficult on them right away. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. And Colin, tell people where they can find you on the internet. Your Twitter handle is at... Yeah, it's at Colin Brown 85. 85, that's what I thought. So at Colin Brown 85, are you on any other social media? Um, mostly just Twitter. I mean, I have I have Facebook. You can uh, find Shirt Off Your Back on Facebook. Okay. Uh, and there's Shirt Off Your Back on Twitter too. It's Shirt Off Back AZ, at Shirt Off Back AZ on Twitter as well. Awesome. All right. Well, Colin Brown, thank you so much for joining the conversation here with me today. And uh, stay in touch. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, it was it was great. I appreciate it.